Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project. This is Jay Harrington. Hi, Tom. Tom Nixon is with me as well. Hey, this is Tom Nixon. Great to be back into the groove here. This is yeah. becoming a regular occurrence as it should yeah, be. We- yeah, and just before we hit record, we were talking about the Detroit Lions uh, being sure bet Super Bowl winners this week, right? <laughs> right, Tom? Uh, we didn't go quite that far, but we are encouraged. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're we're pretty pumped up. We got Michigan in the top five and uh, the Detroit Lions at the top of the NFC North. So good stuff. And we won't be talking about the Tigers, Pistons, or Red Wings today. No, or Michigan State. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, what are <laughs> we gotta, talking about today? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, kind of an eclectic mix of content. So we decided to do something new today, which was pull some of our favorite content that we've read or listened to recently and share that with you and also kind of break down a little bit about what what we liked about it and maybe its broader implications. So um, yeah, I think it'll be, you shared three links with me, Tom, I shared three with you and um, I think it's a good mix of stuff. Yeah, why don't you, uh, you want to, Lead us off here? Yeah, for sure. So my first uh, piece of content comes from Brian Grazer, who is a uh, Hollywood film producer. And he also wrote a book that's uh, closely related on this concept that he talked about in a YouTube video, which is the link I pulled and that we'll, we'll add to the show notes along with all the others. And it's talking about this practice that he's engaged in for the last 35 years, which he calls curiosity conversations. And so every week or two, he will seek out someone who he is curious about and set up a hour long conversation with them and just sort of see where it goes. Um, what's interesting when hearing him talk about this in the video and, and other things I've read about his his weekly or biweekly practice is that he really doesn't have any rules for these conversations other than this important one that I really like, which is that the people he's speaking to have to be from outside the world of movies and TV. So he he's not spending his time in an insular environment talking to other Hollywood and entertainment folks. He's he's looking outside of those boundaries to try to find people that he's curious about in other domains of work and in life. Um, and so I think that's the first lesson or takeaway that I took away from this piece of content, which was just the importance of doing that on a consistent basis. Because, you know, as we've talked about before um, in in other contexts, uh, you you really do have to, you know, get outside of your own environment if you want to have interesting ideas to share and connect dots. Ultimately, the objective um, in many cases is to bring those ideas back into your domain of expertise. Um, But if all you're doing, like, Tom, if, if all we were doing is just talking to other marketers and reading other marketers, like we would just think and act like other marketers. But I, I don't think that's our objective, um, certainly not mine. And so in order to do that, whether that's you know conversations with other people or the content you're consuming, you have to be curious and you have to be thinking um, outside the bounds of, of just your area of expertise. So I, I really like this. Um, I also like the fact that you know, I think it's a great it's a great exercise if you are a content creator of any variety, whether that's for your marketing of your legal practice or you have some other writing or content creation objective. But 
you know, one of the best ways to come up ideas is to write from conversations, I think. I mean, our podcast is a good example of that, Tom, for me. And I think for you too, based on, you know, what I what I know about you and some of the content you've created, which is that, um, you know, I always come away from these conversations with a few ideas for um, additional content. And it's that, it's that conversation, that back and forth nature um, where, you know, I might say something and then you build upon that and I build upon that. And you, you sort of build this scaffolding that you can work with in terms of creating future content. And you just can't get that, in my opinion, you know, sitting alone in a room with your own thoughts in the same way that a dynamic conversation uh, can fuel that. So, um, you know, curiosity conversations in this context, it's it's like having a, you know, you, you want to look for an intellectual sparring partner, uh, so mm-hmm. to speak. And I think that will really spark ideas. W- one note I wanted to share, um, and this, I know you're going to talk a little bit about AI and some of the content that that uh, sparked your interest. And I think that one thing to keep in mind is that I don't think it's a substitute for having conversations with real people by any means, but you can actually have interesting conversations like this with generative AI. Um, so one of the things I like to do with ChatGPT is you know, if I have you know kind of the seed of an idea, um, it's an opportunity to flesh that out to a greater extent, um, chatting with ChatGPT, for example. So um, you can you you can and should be having curiosity conversations with other people, but you should also think in terms of doing that with ChatGPT or some other generative AI uh, when when the opportunity presents itself. Um, and the second thing, Tom, about this article that I liked, and and the final thing was, or the the video I should say, is where Grazer talks about the fact that. Um, he never meets with anyone with any particular objective in mind. In particular, any uh, the idea of trying to come up with an, a movie idea or some contribution to a movie. But despite not having that objective, it inevitably happens. So he shares a story about um, having a conversation with, I can't remember who, I think it was Jim Lovell, uh, an astronaut. And that you know, in a in a circuitous way, was what led to Apollo 13, as he tells the story. And so that's that's another example of another concept that we've talked quite a bit about, which is that um, you have to be strategic when it comes to things like marketing and business development, but you also have to leave yourself open to new ideas and serendipity. And I think that's a really good example of sort of increasing the surface area of serendipity is having curious curiosity conversations like this. And not really having any expectation other than, you know, this could be um, an interesting interaction and whether it be subconscious or conscious, you very well may come away from those conversations with new ideas. It may not be something as significant as Apollo 13, but um, it might be something small and meaningful uh, that, that, you know, happens in the midst of these conversations. So I I really like that. Um, And, and the final point I'll add is that, you know, this is sort of a aphorism that you hear quite often, but I think this is an example of putting that into action, which is in order to be interesting, you have to be interested. And I think that's the, at the root of curiosity. And you can't just be curious in a vacuum. You have to get out into the world and and talk to people, whether it's clients or colleagues or just random people in other domains. And that will allow you to both... Um, be interested and as a result, be interesting. Yeah. I love it. Great piece. Great. Um, I'm, it reminds me that I think 
and I say this out of no false humility, I think the best episodes that you and I do are when we bring in guests. Um, because typically you and I align on like 95% of things, right? And yep. I, def- I get a lot of value out of conversations with you. But when, when we bring someone in a completely different domain or area of expertise, I feel like not only will the listener get more out of it, um, but I feel like I get more out of it. I learn a lot in just in yeah. these conversations. So these are curiosity conversations on the podcast sometimes too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, agreed. I, I think that I... <laughs> Not to agree with you again, Tom, but ninety six percent. But I am, and and we do. I like I said, I get a lot out of talking to you, Tom. But yeah. you're right; it's uh, we we talk a lot. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, cool. In any all, right. all right. So, what's your first one? My first one is um, in all of mine in a roundabout way have to do with content development or content sharing, content marketing. But the first one is I don't know if you're subscribed to this. It's called Very Good Copy. It's a newsletter by Eddie Schleiner who apparently has more than 50,000 subscribers. So it's very niche. It's written for people like me who write for a living and develop content for a living, um, which that didn't shy him away from building a, a at least a subscriber base of 50,000 or more. So um, his topic, of course, you just referenced is AI um, and whether it can replace humans. Um, and rather than make an argument, I, I thought this was a really interesting way. If you allow me to read this and hat tip to, to Eddie for positioning it this way. Very short piece. He just says, I asked one of the AI writing engines a question. Can you describe meeting my firstborn child? Okay. AI thought for a moment that it produced 88 words. Just if you allow me to read it, it's pretty good. Meeting my firstborn child was a truly magical experience. It was a moment of joy and excitement that I will never forget. When I held my newborn for the first time, I felt a wave of love and warmth that I had not experienced before. I was filled with so much joy and pride that I was now a parent. My little one looked so peaceful and content in my arms. Seeing my baby for the first time was an unforgettable moment that I will cherish forever. So that's 88 words generated by a robot who has no idea what it's truly like to experience the firstborn, right? But really good. So this has always been my contention about AI in its present state is that it's amazing what all these different tools could do. But there's a huge chasm between what they could do and what needs to be done often. And so let me then read what how Eddie continues. He said, I read it. Then I wrote my own description. Uh, excuse me. Then I wrote my own description, limiting myself to the same 88 word count. And here it is. Ready? He's so quiet, I said, looking up at the nurse. She smiled behind her mask. We all wore masks. Gowns, too. Gloves and hairnets, too. Is that okay, I said? Is it okay that he's not crying? I thought healthy newborns cried. It's okay, said the nurse. He's quiet but alert, she said. Just look at him looking at you. I looked. He's he's looking right at you. He was. He was looking in my eyes. He's saying hello, she smiled. Hello, I said. I felt like crying. Hello, son. Now, I've never read that without, you probably detected the little lilt in my voice. I tear up almost every time I read that and I get chills reading it. Yeah. That's what needed to be done. Sure, what ChatGPT did was impressive, but what this human who actually experienced the event, his ability to capture that in an emotional way that told a story, I think was just miles and miles ahead of what 
the initial drafted. You wrote something this week. You said what well, you could tell when people use chat GPT or they're like, like a slot machine where they just pull the lever one time and out comes the content. Um, this is an illustration of why that shouldn't be done that way and how powerful human writing can still be. So, yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, AI. And I think the, the point I was getting at is the one that's captured here in this post, which is that you know, we, we oftentimes will hear and, and say ourselves, you know, the generic writing advice to quote, be authentic. And it's, it's almost lost its meaning. It's been said so many times, but actually I think AI writing has allowed us to better understand what that means. Because when we see just, again, this, this slot machine, what I meant by that is, you know, you put in a prompt, you pull the, uh, you pull the lever and you publish whatever comes out. It's not going to. It's not going to have that human voice to it. It doesn't have that authenticity. So you see, it's you see the inverse of authenticity, and you better understand what being authentic means, which is captured, I think, very well in that piece you shared, Tom. And I think that's the new challenge. The new challenge is going to be not can you create um, table stakes content because that's so easy now, right? It literally is pull the lever. How do you get content that stands out and somebody connects to it emotionally, whether it's to jilt a tear or whatever it may be, that they stop and they that was really worth reading. And that's going to be a challenge. So fast forward to 10 years from now where just this content is just going to proliferate. I still think there's an opportunity for content marketers. If they're going to rely on content, I think they need to put in that extra amount of authenticity, passion, whatever it is to get that piece to stand out. And yeah, I read that like, you know, I'm an you know amateur actor, but that copy, like it, it sort of commanded that you read it that way. The, while the other one, I could just read like a Wikipedia entry because that's about what it was. So anyway, point made. Um, I really like very good copy. Again, if you're into this sort of thing, it's by Eddie Schleiner and it's a great read. Yeah, All of yeah I love it. And, short. and one last point I'll make related. You you mentioned just, you know, the, the flood of content, AI generated content that we'll be seeing over the next 10 years. Uh, that, that, means to me that it does require much more effort um, as a content creator to stand out, to create signal versus noise. And mm -hmm. because there, there is, and there will continue to be to an even greater extent, kind of a power law dynamic with content where, uh, you know, if you think about a equated to like a venture capitalist with a portfolio where they need, you know, where one, you know, one company within that portfolio of a hundred needs to you know, really succeed in order to make up all the losses in the other uh, the other ninety nine companies in, in investments, and I think that same we need to think in those same terms with our content, where it's not it's not like just you know sprinkle money around the roulette table, but rather really focus mm -hmm. on creating things that are of really real high quality and real value. Um, because otherwise everything's just going to get lost in the wash. Um, you need to do something to stand out. So you, you do need to have, uh, you know, a relatively high quantity because, you know, that's the only way to get quality um, in most cases. And and it's really, you know, it's up to the audience to decide what's high quality, but, you know, you, you need to make it sure it's quality as well. So pairing quantity and quality, not just one or the other is really the key thing. Um, I think moving forward. Absolutely. Yep. Great All point. right. All right. What do you got for number two? On your uh, so three? number two comes from one of my favorite writers and content creators, David Perel. Um, so David, uh, he writes a writing course or he puts on a writing course. He has a new podcast, Tom, that you might like called How I Write. He's got another podcast, too, that I don't listen to as much, but um, I did start listening to his new one. 
And he wrote just a relatively short piece uh, and with the title, Own It Mentality. And I think a key passage here that sets the stage is the following. My desire to people please is why I say yes to opportunities as they arise, but I disappoint people later when I'm late on a project or have to cancel at the last moment. To combat this, David then went and created a uh, sort of a, or adopted a new mentality for himself, which he calls own it mentality. And what he means by this is be a man of my word, do what I say I'm going to do when I'm saying, when I say I'm going to do it. Okay. So all good. Um, but you know, the thing is, the thing that struck me about this piece of content is despite the fact that this is something, you know, I've heard a million times, right. We've all been, we've all heard, uh, and read, the idea to that it's important to take ownership and really have uh, this sort of mentality. I think this this piece of writing demonstrates uh, the notion that again, um, everything has been said and it can be said again and needs to be said again. And what sets a particular piece of content apart and what can make it land and break through is is the writing, uh, how you express that idea. It's not the idea itself. It's how you express that idea. And I think in this case as well, there's a lot of humanity and authenticity to this piece that really for me uh, makes it stand out. And that's, you know, again, there's nothing, um, there's nothing about this that's necessarily original except for his unique take and perspective on the idea and the storytelling that he engages in in a, in a piece like this. So so to me, it's not about like, this is not some original, unique idea. It's just taking an old idea and, and doing a really good job of wrapping it in great writing. Um, so I don't know, um, that that that's the biggest takeaway for me. The other one that I think is important, and this is true of Brian Grazer as well, which is that instead of just saying take ownership which is what most people say in a, in a, in a piece like this mm -hmm. he gave it a name uh, a mentality for himself right the own it mentality which is much punchier and more memorable than just an art, generic article another generic article saying take ownership um and and brian grazer in his case he called um he called the practice of having conversations with other people, curiosity conversations, which right. I think is also really sticky as well. So again, if you're a content creator, if you're someone who's um, writing or uh, you know writing books, doing videos, whatever the case might be, thinking in terms of, you know, how do I name and claim this concept um, in a way that's memorable can be really important. It, it builds upon the idea I talked about in our last episode of when writing, you know, thought leadership advice, can you create a framework, right? Not just not just this long string of prose that touches upon all these concepts, but doesn't wrap them up in a in an actionable framework like a three part series of steps. Um, these are all important like tools and and ways to package your ideas that makes them more memorable. And I think that's important. Yeah, and um, at risk of uh, flattering the co-host. You do that very well with your, the concept of serendipity. You talk about creating serendipity. That's interesting. You know, it just on its face, you're like, wait, how do you make luck happen? And then you pay that off very well in, in yeah. your prescriptions. So the other reaction I have to this piece is a complete left turn. 
Um, but I want people to click on the link in the show notes because my immediate reaction to this, even before I read it, was it's beautifully laid out and easy to read. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just intuitive. Like it's so clean. And in an era where people are constantly bombarded with like sidebars and overlays and all yes. this other crap, yes. this is just like I know exactly what he wants me to look at. Yeah, and I'm gonna do it. So there's a there's a science behind good writing too, and it's you know it's expressing it in the physical realm, just not in the words itself. So cool, love it. And you write like how many articles have you written about? Hey, you need to take ownership. This is not just another one of those. It's yeah. Well, I you know the funny I wrote an entire chapter in my book, The Essential Associate. Is the title of that chapter is Take Ownership? And God, I wish I had called it. (laughs) have an own it mentality. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. All right, ready for my number 2? Yes. My number 2 was a piece of content that I loved so much. I asked the author if I could use it as a guest post on my own blog. So, the link that you get uh in the show notes will be actually a uh uh kind of a backhanded way to get you to my website. <laughs> <laughs> but um it's illustrative of the fact that here's a, a writer that I've been following for months. Her name's Trudy Roth, maybe years. She writes for Brian Clark's further newsletter, which I brought up a million times and you're probably sick of me referring to it, but I just love it. It's written like specifically for someone my age in in my station. Um, But she writes more about just kind of living um, your best life after 50 and it's not so much business content, but she's such a great writer. I thought that this piece of content was really like... um, in a way, self-immolating, but in a way, it's very sort of vulnerable. It starts out like this, by the way. As someone who makes her life, or sorry, let me start again. As someone who makes her living by writing, you might think I'm petrified that AI will decimate my career. So she's leaning right into it, right? Um, And there's a reason I wanted to use this as a segue from my previous piece of content, because any onlooker could make the argument that, of course, Tom is advocating for the human connection in writing. He writes and he gets hired to write. So what's he going to say? But there's other reasons why you write. And you've brought this up a bunch, Jay, is that you say, in a lot of cases, I'm not sure what I think about something until I write about it. And she says almost echoing your words, writing about something teaches you about what you know, what you don't know, and how to think. Writing about something is one of the best ways to learn about it. Writing is not just a vehicle to share ideas with others, but also a way to understand them better yourself. The point of this piece is to advocate for writing for writing's sake and for the writer's benefit, not necessarily financial benefit, but what it does to their brain and what it does to kind of wake up the the synapses and get you thinking about things as opposed to offloading everything, whether it's to an assistant, a, a writer or a robot, right? Um, when you're doing that, yes, you're getting workload off of your plate, but you're also robbing the brain of an exercise that it, it needs. And um, the, the closing, before I turn it back to you, the one of the closing uh, argument she makes is if you really want to stimulate stimulate your brain right by hand research shows that it improves your memory as you age it helps you focus it supports comprehension and retention of new information kick it up a notch by journaling which acts as a mindfulness tool reducing anxiety and stress and increasing your creativity resilience and ability to achieve your goals and then finally she quotes uh um c day lewis we do not write in order to be understood. We write in order to understand. So I 
turn to you, Jay, somebody who's been an advocate of this sort of philosophy. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I I think that it is true that you know we we talk about you know, don't write for everyone, write for someone, and oftentimes that someone is and, and should be yourself uh, for the, all of these reasons. So I think that probably you know, captures. There's just so many multifaceted benefits from writing, um, and not just you know the the work that someone else is paying you to do. Uh, not not an you know a piece of advocacy on behalf of a client only, but writing for yourself, you know, again, to, to figure out what you think about something, to explore new avenues, to get ideas out of your head and down onto paper to, to generate the mental health benefits from that, right. To limit anxiety. I know that, um, you know, my wife, Heather, several years ago now, I think it was during COVID. Um, I had encouraged her to pick up Julia Cameron's book, morning pages, not because I had read it or, engage in morning pages, which is basically first thing in the morning, grab your cup of coffee, grab a pen and pad and freehand write like three pages of whatever comes to mind, right? Just get whatever's in your head out of it and onto paper. And that, that's been you know, probably one of the more meaningful changes she's made in her life over that period of time. I know she, I can say that confidently because she tells me that. And it's just a matter of like, you know, getting, again, if we keep everything pent up, um, you know, it's, it's going to, it's going to lead to a certain amount of overload. And if you get it out of your head onto paper, it's a, it's a, like a releasing function. And Heather says, it's just sort of magical as, as Julia Cameron describes in that book, the first couple pages are just like gibberish nonsense, right? It's just stream of consciousness, meaningless words. And then, you know, by that last like half page, you actually say something that, uh, that is either really insightful or really helpful in some way or another. Um, so I think, yeah, writing can can have all of those benefits that are oftentimes unexpected. Um, and then the last point I'll make about this piece was, you know, she talked, right, it's, it's ostensibly she's talking about AI, but just more as a way to introduce how valuable kind of the, you know, the old school writing process can be. And, and I'll, I'll just, and she says, you know, she, not to not use AI for writing, but to use it, I think she says, as a tool. And mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, the more I've used AI, the more I've realized that it's it's both incredibly smart and incredibly stupid. So <laughs> that's that's why you have to be so careful um, in using it, uh, not just from like a malpractice standpoint as a lawyer, that's obvious, but just in general, understanding how to use it as a tool is really the critical thing that I keep, you know, the more I use it, the more I better understand the use cases and and set aside the idea that it's going to replace me as a writer. Someday, maybe, yeah, but, but not yet. Not yet, for sure. Right. Well, so I have a little um, hack, maybe is the right word. I don't know. I'll ask uh, ChatGPT to come up with a synonym. But um, here's an exercise for those who are really... Um, enthrall with the uh, promise of chat GPT. So you could combine the two exercises. So my idea is before you go to chat GPT to do some assignment writing or otherwise is write down by hand on a, on a legal pad, 
what your prompts are going to be before you get to the computer. So a handful of things that you want ChatGPT to do for you, summarize for you, understand better. And my guess is by the time you get to that fifth thing that you're going to write down, there's going to be an aha moment that there's going to be like this clarity. Like I know what this is going to look like if it comes back correctly. And I think it's because what you suggested with Heather in her journaling and what Trudy here is describing in terms of the scientific reasons behind the actual act of writing. So yeah. give it a shot, everyone. Yeah. Good tip. Good tip. All right. All right. What's your number three? Uh, So mine, it's a, it's a very short post uh, on a, uh, on a private equity firm's website called permanent equity. uh, And it's called have fun writing memos. And so what uh, Tim Hansen is the author of this article from permanent equity. And he talks about his mindset when writing an investment memo, which is something that, you know, PE and and I think venture capital guys do when they're you know, evaluating an investment. Um, and he talks about how you know during, as this t- title suggests, he wants that process to be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he says, if it's not fun to write about an investment, it's not going to be fun to hold that investment for 27 years. And so the point he's really making is if you're going to do something for a long time, you have to enjoy doing it. Now, again, um, this is not a revolutionary idea, but I think it's 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 definitely an important one. So the underlying idea is great, but there's a few other things that I, I think that are worth noting. And one is that I could have pulled, uh, or I could pull maybe you know twenty to twenty five pieces of content um, from this PE firm's website, and I and I could have included them on this list. They create awesome content. Um, and there's a, a guy by the, I think it's Dave Bishore or Bishore, um, who's very prominent and popular on Twitter. Um, and this is how I first came upon, um, I, but I didn't realize, like, I, I enjoy his content. I had no idea he was like a, a PE guy. And then, so I finally got back to permanent equity site and it, it's great. I mean, this is an example of a sophisticated professional services firm, a successful private equity fund who is taking a, just just taking a stand and having a point of view. And I think that's really refreshing. I mean, if you think about the the typical PE firm website or law firm website uh, for that matter, right? It's it's very stuffy, it's very dry. It really, you know, it just it's it's really trying to be safe, like not say anything mm-hmm. meaningful uh because the risk of you know, like rocking someone's boat uh is is you know, they they view as so much higher uh, of a risk than to actually say something that would would stick with with someone else. Um, so I I like I just like the vibe and point of view and irreverence to an extent uh, of this website. Um, and so the the other parts I like about this article specifically though is is again it's super short. It's maybe two hundred words uh, mm-hmm. at most. Um, but it, you know, it's also, it, it's meaningful though, because it, again, it, it takes an old idea, like, you know, try to, you, you need to enjoy what you do. So you need to keep moving your career in the direction of things you enjoy, not things you don't, if you want sustainability. Um, but it's peppered with stories. You know, he talks about, he opens this piece by talking about how, you know, his, his favorite days when he was a kid were when he had a doubleheader in baseball. Because that meant he got to spend the entire day doing something that was fun. And it was like, oh, yeah, I can totally resonate with that. I mean, and anyone, whether it's baseball or something else, we can all resonate with that feeling of, yeah, you know, from a childhood, childish standpoint, we, you know, there were things we loved doing. And, and, and you know, 
the obvious transition he's making by opening with that short paragraph is that we lose that as adults, right? And mm. and we sort of accept that work's got to be this hard grind where, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be. And even if you're doing something dry, like writing a memo, find ways to try to make it fun. And fun might seem like too grandiose of a term for writing a memo, but I guarantee it, I know this from my own experience, there are ways even within things that are seemingly dry and boring to make them more interesting. So I, I like that a lot. Um, so check out their website generally, I think, you know, go to their, go to their content, um, go to their foundations page, which is sort of their core values. And they say things like, you know, we're setting out to be helpful, not impressive. And then they follow that up with really great writing, like the following. If you're looking for suits with spreadsheets, we'll tell you what to do. Well, we'll let you down. Um, and and so, you know, they're, they're basically, I don't, I don't know what they call this, Tom, I can't remember, but it's like reverse positioning where mm-hmm. you're you're positioning yourself by contrast or contrast positioning where you're contrasting against the typical competitor in your space. And you're not going to be for everyone, but that's not the point anyway. But for that particular type of uh, company who's looking to pair with a private equity fund for an investment, they, they might be just the right fund for the for that type of person that resonates with that sort of idea. So have a point of view, take a stand, um, you know, spe- speak uh, in a way that's actually interesting uh, and and write that way too. And I think it'll take you far. Yeah, agreed. And I, I like this piece as well for all the reasons you said. I mean, you would not expect to read something like this coming from a private equity firm or God forbid that they actually publish this on their website. So I love that. And then just to reiterate what you said about it being short, um, not only is this another super easy website to look at an article to to look at but i think we need as content developers to think through how do we say more with fewer words and i even struggle with this you know the typical framework is 750 to 1200 word article or whatever but the one that i read earlier the one that eddie that was i read probably he said 88 words so 106 i probably read 200 words right the post actually went on for another three or 400 words, but there was no point in me reading it either to you today or even to myself. Cause I went back and yeah. I had totally forgotten that he had continued, you know, AI is a tool. It's not, you know, all the things that we're saying mm-hmm. because he'd already made his point. It's like, yeah. he should have stopped on, there. Yeah. Like the old George Costanza rule, right? Just leaving yeah. wanting more. So anyways, yeah. well, it's great. interesting before you get to the last one and, and uh, I think everything, I mean, the, the, Brian Grazer YouTube video is like three minutes long. Um, uh, yeah, the all three. Uh, so all that this post that I just mentioned, the own it mentality is short, right? It's probably six hundred words or so. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones you shared were short. Now this one you're going to share is is long. Yeah, uh, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. But in general, um, there's there's some reason here for you know why we were attracted to this, and and I think the the short nature of them is is the reason but they said a lot in a short post so i guarantee you all of them put a tremendous amount of work into all of these posts yep i told you the most common piece of uh review or feedback i got when i published my first novel was i'd like how you have short chapters (laughs) yeah (laughs) like but you know they were that it was flattering because what it said to me is was i was respectful of their time and attention and it got them more engaged right yep all so, right. um, well, this podcast episode is getting long, so let's, uh, let's okay. do the last one. Well, you're right. This next article is long, so I'm going to allow people to read it on their own. But it's, are you familiar with Mark Schaefer? Sort of a marketing. I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So Mark Schaefer has a, 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 a long post on a topic that's near and dear to my heart. It is called the uncomfortable state of content marketing metrics. Try to summarize it quickly in essentially my takeaway anyway, is that um, we're living in a world where metrics are very easy to get. Um, but sometimes they create a perverse incentive for the person who is minding those metrics. In other words, give you an example. So I could create a system where I, I try to cajole a user to click on a link and then I've, now I've got a tracking pixel and I can follow this person all over the internet. Um, if they, if I give them a lead magnet in exchange for an email address, now I've got something that I can remarket to them and I can set up an email sequence and then I can track how many opens I have and how many clicks. And then I can report all of this wonderful data back to somebody and say, look at all these metrics. We're trending in the right direction but you still haven't told me if you sold anything yet. Right. And so, and that's not always the objective. The point he's making twofold, I think, and I'd be curious to see what you took out of this long piece is that one looking at marketing metrics alone does not tell the story of success or failure. So much of what happens in a purchasing decision has happened in, a, in something that can't be attributed. So there's, you know, especially in the B2B space you and I operate in, there's, you know, maybe I, somebody forwards an email, maybe they have a sidebar conversation, maybe then they go presented into a board meeting, then somebody comes back and says, go vet three or four other people. Maybe you were that three or four other people and weren't even the person who sent the original email. Anyway, so he says that 70% of just social sharing on the web is dark. In other words, I do a post on LinkedIn and then you share it, Jay, right? I have no idea and I don't have access to how many of your followers are seeing it um, with ex complete clarity. Same thing might be on Facebook or again, I mentioned the forwarded email. So first of all, you're measuring something that's not completely measurable to begin with. Secondly, like I said, now if you if the if the goal is to serve the marketing metrics, then you create all these sort of perverse incentives to increase clicks or to, you know what happens when you go click baiting, uh, clicks and to um, uh, have sign up forms on your website or whatever it might be. And it's not the service of, you know, or it's not the business of serving the audience in the way that we talked about in our last episode, right? It's giving value and all of the things that get you hired to begin with. So there's a lot in this piece. The upshot for me is that marketing metrics are good, important, and they show trends, but there is, there is a very real danger into using them solely as an arbiter of success or failure in your marketing. He says, he actually opens the piece, and this is where I'll turn it over to you, Jay. He says, I have no idea how many people are reading this blog post or where. And I say the same thing all the time about this podcast. I've never asked you once, how many people are listening? I really have no idea. And honestly, I don't care. It's not because it's not important to me. It's because that's not as important to me as it is for you and I to continue to create great content that people find useful. And if something ever happens of that, then maybe I'll hear about it. But if not, it's, I know I'm doing it for the right reason. And I think that someday that the, that will be rewarded in some way. I don't need to know, you know, with exact specificity at all times, what is our subscriber numbers? What are our listener numbers? So where do you stand on some of these metrics? And this, is there anything else you took out of this piece that was different than what I took out of it? Cause I know it's long. No, I, as far as metrics go, I, I don't, I could care less. Like I don't, I have zero interest. I never check any metrics. Um, I mean, I should, LinkedIn is another story because it's like in your face. You can't you can't even you can't go on the platform without seeing your metrics, um, which is good and bad, I guess. But as far as the podcast, book sales, my you know blog content, newsletter, like all of that, I, it is what it is, right? I mean, 
and and that's one of the reasons. And I feel like if I was focused on that, I'd be doing worse than if I wasn't to an extent. Or yeah. or I'd be doing the thing that I really don't want to do, which is grow the wrong audience. I, I don't I don't really care as long as I have the right audience. And what I mean by that is just people that people that are attracted to what I want to do and and the type of content I want to create. Um, and that resonate with that, like that's that's the you know so, so uh, quote unquote tribe that I'm trying to build. I don't want to be something inauthentic, um, you know, try to hack my way to growth. Like none of those things matter to me. If that was the case, that would be a great example of this not being fun. Um, you know, to go back to the the make writing a memo fun piece, mm-hmm. um, and and why bother doing it otherwise? I think you know it can quote unquote work. Uh, and still be fun at the same time. And that's, I guess, what I'm aiming for. So, I mean, I, I agree with the piece in that sense that like, and and why I generally don't read content from other marketers because so much of it is focused on things like metrics and measurement and all of that, analytics. I just, that not only does it not interest me, I just think it oftentimes is counterproductive to be focused on that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. So there, Gary, we agree. So yep. We need to have somebody else on next time who would disagree. <laughs> That's right. We definitely do. All right. Well, let's wrap this episode up in the inter- interest of uh, at least some brevity. We uh, we went on a bit long, but hopefully uh, this content uh, and, and some of those finds were interesting for you out there. And we'll put those links in the show notes. And otherwise, Tom, that's another episode, I guess. Yeah, I'd say if, and if all else fails and none of the content was valuable, go Lions. <laughs> go Lions. <laughs> all right. Talk to you later. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.